Good morning. That was weak. Good morning. All right, our passage today is from Jude, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to the second to last book of the Bible. Uh, we've been in Jude's letter for a few weeks now, and, and even though it's not very long, it's, it's a majorly power-packed book. Uh, you know, Jude and James both being half-brothers of Jesus, and uh, the letters that they wrote are kind of, to me, they're kind of like the granola of the New Testament. Like, they're not as easy to ingest, maybe, as some of the books, but there's a lot of nutrition in there, so we eat it anyway. And so uh, today's two verses are actually, uh, they're part of a four-verse section where Jude lays out what the believer's responsibility is with regard to our faith walk, okay? But we're dealing with the first two verses of that today. But in order to see how they, how they kind of flow, we're going to read them all together. Uh, so if you would, just please follow along with your eyes. I'm going to read it off the screen back here. Um, if we could... <laughs> You'd think I'd be used to this by now. Okay, got it. Boy. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now there are four commands in this passage. That means they're in the imperative tense in Greek. Um, and there are also um, five participles, which are like continuing action verbs uh, that are in here. And they, they, are, they modify these commands. And you might notice that it's basically in two parts. Verses 20 and 21, which is where we're going to be this morning, uh, it has only one command, but it, that, that one command has three modifiers attached to it. And this tells us how we believers should deal with ourselves. Okay, But then verses 22 and 23, which is going to be my next uh, sermon, are geared toward teaching us how to deal with others in the church. And so despite, despite the simplicity, this is a really, really deep text today, so I hope you're going to stick with me. Um, let's bow and pray for wisdom. Father God, we just ask in the precious name of your son Jesus that you open all of our hearts to wisdom and discernment, Father, that you might give it to us, that we might uh, take this stuff that we're hearing today, and, and bring it home with us and apply it in our daily lives, Lord. We ask that we're good soil, that the word will take root and bear fruit. And we pray it bears fruit for you. And God, we ask that uh, for everyone here, Father, that they, they leave slightly different from how they came in, uh, with a little bit more of an understanding of your character and, uh, Father, a greater feeling of your presence, so that we might convey that to the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let's go over today's verses one more time. This is just for today's. All right. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, there's, there's a couple of things about how the ESV translates this particular passage uh, that may not pick up the nuances of the Greek very well, and so we're going we're to talk about those as we get to them, but, but nevertheless, um, this is an intense sentence. Okay, in part because of the this, this singular command that it has. Uh, like we discussed earlier, all these other verbs uh, in the sentence modify that command, which is keep yourselves in the love of God. That's an odd way to state that. 
keep yourselves in the love of God. So before we talk about what this is saying, it'd probably be a good idea to nail down what it's not saying, okay? At least most likely not saying. Is Jude trying to impress on his readers that Christians must do something in order to be loved by God? I'd like to hear some more people answer that. Ooh, you say yes? I'm going to say no. (laughs) We don't have to do anything in order to be loved by God. After all, for God so loved the world, right? God's love is ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere. But I also uh, want to, to, well, we'll clarify that shortly. Um, I want to point out, I don't think Jude was telling them to keep themselves in a state of salvation as this understanding would be sharply in the face of typical Protestant theology, but but far more importantly, the Bible specifically says that we are kept for salvation by God's power. Okay? I want you to see 1 Peter 1, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, We must remember that Jude is writing specifically to believers here. Okay? In verse 1, at the open of the letter, he referred to them as beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to note that the word translated keep is usually translated to mean something like to retain, to withhold, or to guard. So Jude is instructing believers to make sure they're staying and operating within the boundaries of God's love. And the great Bible commentator Warren Rigsby, he points out that Jesus made a similar statement in John 15, 9 when he says, abide in my love. It means remain. It means stay fixed. Now, at the same time, this shouldn't assume, we shouldn't assume, that this is is not a sincere warning to believers, okay? This is a warning to people who are Christians to remind us that we need to both omit sin and commit acts of righteousness. Because if we don't see either of those factors in our lives, there's no hard evidence at all of our profession of faith. And a person can profess to be a believer until... The cows come home and pigs fly, but, but they are a Christian in name only until they are born again from above through faith in Christ. But I'm convinced that the people Jude wrote this letter to, at least in general, are true believers. They're not heretics because he refers to them as beloved, okay? Which is, this is a neat idiom in the first century. I like it. We, we only hear it now pretty much when we're reading the Bible or when we're at a wedding, right? They start with, dearly beloved, you know, yada, yada, da. Um, and and that's, that's a, a great word. It means dearly loved. And of course, it's a reasonable expectation that, that there will be false Christians who are going to read Jude's letter, just as there are false Christians who infiltrate God's church and foster chaos. But the intended audience is sincere Christ followers. Okay, those who believe the gospel and strive to live according to God's sovereign will. So it's got to be with that in mind that we discern what Jude means when he commands us to keep or guard ourselves in the love of God. Now that said, we should never take it for granted, never take it for granted that God is doing anything in us if we're not operating in the power of his Holy Spirit. Read Romans 8, okay? And when we look at these three present tense continual action verbs, we see just how vitally important it is that we maintain our faith through the things that we actually do. Okay, now remember, the, the, whole, the whole process 
of sanctification is a cooperative effort where we work out what God is working in us, right? Both to, to desire and to do these things. It's very uh, Philippians 1. So that first verb is build, as in building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's an interesting phrase, your most holy faith. It should be noted, this is not referring uh, to individuals and their own subjective beliefs. Okay, it's referring to, to a group of believers who share the same like and precious faith. And our faith is based in, in definitive doctrine and in the foundation of it is, is the changing, uh, excuse me, the unchanging Lord Jesus Christ. He's the same, God bless you guys. God bless you guys. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. He is immutable, okay? So our faith is based in the, the definite doctrines that are on the foundation of Christ himself. And remember, it's also Jude in verse 3 who referred to our need to contend. That means to fight, to contend for the faith that was relayed once for all time to the saints. Okay, so, so one of the very first sermons from this epistle was, was about fighting for the faith. Okay, this one's about fighting for faithfulness. So, um, I want us to, let's, let's kick this around a minute, okay? The idea of building ourselves up. We have a fancy English word for building up. Anybody know what it is? Construction? Uh, a churchy word. Edification. Thank you, my good man. Edification, yes. Okay, uh, why is that so important for the believer? Has anybody been out to Tomlinson Hall lately? Okay, yeah, have you walked around the outside of it? Okay, this building, which is more than 40 years old, is starting to get a bit decrepit around the edges. Okay, now, if you, like me, are also more than 40 years old, you're probably getting decrepit around the edges. Okay, <laughs> some of you may be a little more decrepit than others, <laughs> and not so much on the edges, but kind of right here. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Just kidding. But, you know, I can identify with this, all right? The building is going to fall apart eventually because that's what buildings do. Buildings require maintenance. They do not have the capacity to fix themselves. Okay, Warren Wiersbe, again, he wrote, the Christian life must never stand still. If it does, it will go backward. A house left to itself falls apart. The apostates, he says, are in the business of tearing down, but each Christian must be involved in building up first his own spiritual life and then his local assembly. Okay, yeah. I think this comment right here is gold, okay? This is really good because he identifies two incredibly important aspects of the Christian life. You know, first of all, in order, in order for a Christian to maintain his own spiritual walk, he needs to frequently connect with Scripture. We need to be in the Word of God. You may remember last week, um, I think it was last week, we discussed uh, another Christian discipline that's so often neglected because it's so accessible, and we're going to come around to that one shortly, but, but let's be honest with ourselves, okay? At, at least here in the United States, at least, at least where we live, there are Bibles in nearly every hotel room, right? There's Bibles, multiple Bibles in the majority of households, and the device that nearly every one of us has in our pocket is capable of holding a bazillion different translations all at one time, right? It sure doesn't get read very often, though. Certainly, 
certainly not often enough. You remember that chunk of Psalms, Psalm 119, that, uh, that Ron read earlier? Isn't it cool how much David thirsted for the Word of God? I mean, he really, really loved it. He desired it with his whole heart. Can you imagine how effective and how powerful the church would be if we all loved the Word of God as much as David did, and if we all tried to internalize it, to memorize it the way that King David did? How, how strong our faith could be. There's a, a great, he was a, a Chinese missionary, his name was Leland Wang. Uh, he tells a story about how he was convicted by the Holy Spirit uh, of the importance of reading God's Word. So after uh, the, the, the scripture that really hit him, I think, was, was Acts 17.11, where he, he talks, it talks about the Berean Christians, you remember that? It says they were nobler than most because everything Paul said, they were like cross-checking it, you know. They were, they were going through the word, and they were trying to see if, if it was legit. I think that's really, really important. And anyway, so that convicted him. And so when they would sift Paul's teaching, so he realized he was nowhere near well-versed enough in the scriptures. And so he said this, uh, the Christians in Berea searched the scriptures daily. And he emphasizes daily. To systematically study the word, I determined to read a portion every day or each day. But when, y'all, this is, listen, if you have trouble reading the scriptures, do it in the morning. Okay, anyway, he says, I realized my trouble was that I liked to sleep late and then rush into my daily activities. Mm-hmm. When evening came, I was too tired to read and continually postponed my study until the next day. Again, God led me to several verses in Proverbs, one of which, Proverbs 6, 9, says, How long will you sleep, O sluggard? So, uh-huh. So I decided to rise each day at 6 a.m. to read my Bible. I began this discipline when I was 21 while studying at the Naval College in Nanking. There was no central heating. Uh, the cold winter provided little incentive for my plan. He says, after some time, I faltered. Soon, uh, I, or so I prayed for dedication and disciplined myself. I don't necessarily recommend this. Disciplined myself by hitting my hand with a stick once for each minute that I was late in rising. He says, I think the longest I overslept was 30 minutes, which was a painful experience. Uh, my wife and others thought this punishment a little crazy, but it got results. He says, I, only, I overslept only a few times. Later, I found an even more effective means of ensuring my early reading. If I did not read at least one chapter to start the day, I did not eat my breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast became my motto. <laughs> okay, you know what's awesome about this? Okay. Not only did he become a great missionary in China, but decades later, many Chinese Christians still quote that same line as a reminder to get into God's Word. No, no Bible, no breakfast. Maybe some of us should do that. And some of you, well, I don't eat breakfast. Okay, fine. No Bible, no coffee then. Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> By the way, um, Leland Wang, his typical approach was to read 10 chapters in the morning. I think a lot of us would probably feel like we've done our duty and then some if we read 10 verses, but that's because we subscribe to a very sissified version of Christianity. I'm waiting for an amen on that one. Yeah. I think we set the bar awfully low. You know, you might consider 
where you are in your desire to read and meditate on the word and whether it might be appropriate to step it up. I will tell you, as your pastor, I need to step up mine. I need to step up my prayer, too. I think all of us should look at our our lives and evaluate and, and say, God, where should I be? How far am I falling short? Help me step it up, Lord. I've already talked to a a couple of guys in this church about potentially studying the Bible together once a week outside of Sunday. And by the way, if you're interested in being a part of that, hit me up. We'll talk later. Um, Anyway, being in the scriptures is a very important way to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. But a second way that is also important is through fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters. Okay, Probably the most effective way to do this, we're doing it right now, is to gather together in corporate worship on Sunday morning along with all the, you know, the trappings that accompany that. We have great food, so we do potlucks. Um, you know, showing up for Sunday school class and, and joining the discussion. I got a couple guys in Sunday school class that are always throwing stuff out, and we have good conversations in there. Um, you know, but just hanging around after church in general is even helpful. I think it's a good thing for us to do rather than, you know, making a beeline to the, the car so you can beat the Baptist to get to whatever restaurant you're going to. Um, I, I think, I do believe that attending you know, church, official church gatherings together, that's very important in the life of a Christian. Um, and, and the Bible is very, very clear in commanding us not to forsake the assembly of believers. But that is not the only way that we can commune with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? I mean, frankly, anytime Christians get together, it can be, it can be an intentionally God-honoring experience of fellowship. And it should be. Okay, because we can reflect the love of Christ by showing interest in one another's things and by bearing one another's burdens. I mean, Galatians 6, 2, one of my favorite passages, it says, in doing so, in bearing one another's burdens, we what, somebody? Fulfill the law of Christ. Amen. That's powerful. There are way too many one another's in Scripture for us to believe that we could hack it on our own. So, so we guard ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in the most holy faith. But we can also guard ourselves or keep ourselves in the love of God by praying, by praying, and and, and specifically praying in the Holy Spirit. You know, we're actually commanded to do this, right? Very consistently in the Bible, the, the, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 18, that we are to pray in the Spirit on all occasions, right? And all kind with all kinds of prayers and requests. That was part of our our armor of God section that we looked at recently. But even more profoundly, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he tells Christians to pray continually, right? You say, well, continually? That's kind of a tall order. Paul, are we supposed to pray in our sleep? You know, I mean, what does that even mean? Well, I, I think his point is that God's people should always adopt an attitude of prayerfulness. You know, God should always be at the front of our minds. You know, and we should be engaged in constant conversation with him throughout the day. There should be times that we keep on returning to our, our, our face-to-face with God. You know, back in the 1990s, um, it, was, it was common for people that were about to, to have a prayer group. You know, we, we, might, um, we might have someone, we'd say, hey, uh, hey, Ron, will you, you dial, and then Brent, you hang up. You know, that's kind of how we'd say. And um, that terminology, you know, it's cutesy and all that, but if you really think about it, we're never really supposed to hang up, Right? When we come to Christ, that's the dialing. And we shouldn't hang up. 
Just something to think about. The, the, the constant presence and power of God is, and our total dependence on him, that should always motivate us to keep seeking his face, to keep going to him in prayer. Um, what better way, really, if you think about it, what better way to stay within the guardrails of his protective love than to consistently seek his will and stay focused on his face? Uh, you ever heard the phrase quorum Deo? I know you have. Quorum Deo, it, it means before the face of God. It's from the Latin Vulgate. Um, being consistent in prayer keeps us centered, and it reminds us that we are always quorum Deo. We are always before the face of God. Okay, so, all right, then, then if prayer is so important, um, then think about this. What should we pray for? Well, personally, I think it's a good idea to pray for what he assured us that he will give us if we ask. I mean, for instance, James 1.5 says, if anyone asks for wisdom, he'll give it to them without finding fault. It's one of my favorites. It's pretty awesome, right? And in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples that if they ask for anything that's in his will, then it will be theirs. I mean, so it kind of makes sense to, to pray along those lines, right? And later in James, he, he chides the, the people that he wrote to. He, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. We should also follow another format I bet most of us are familiar with, and that is how Christ himself taught us to pray. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, as I think most of you probably are, um, that's something that has not only been around since you know, Jesus spoke it, but it's something that a lot of us have memorized. You know, a lot of us, uh, if you grew up in a more liturgical church setting or, or maybe if you, uh, you know, started off in, in, in Catholicism, you're, you're probably very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so I, I think we probably know it with slightly different wording, okay? Um, so I'm going to ask you guys to read it along with me. I'm going to put it up here on the, on the screen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, pray like this. Say it with me. Our Father who is in heaven, your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. This is... An amazing prayer. It's so succinct, and yet it's very comprehensive. I mean, it covers a whole lot of stuff here. Um, unfortunately, I think many in the realm of Christendom have missed the point of the Lord's Prayer. It's become more of a talisman, you know, uh, like it's just simply repeated by rote without any real consideration when it, it, it doesn't really seem like that was Jesus' point. In fact, if you, if you examine the prayer as it's written, you'd probably agree with most scholars that, that it's intended to be used as an outline for elaboration. Okay, um, I'm going to take a real quick look at it from this perspective. The first and last sentences, they kind of serve as, as the bread for a praise sandwich. Okay, and, and don't miss the fact that we start off by saying, Our Father who is in heaven. See, God is the Father of anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, And if you have a more recent Bible translation, then it, it may have a footnote there letting you know the last sentence of the prayer and the word amen um, are, are likely a scribal edition that was added later uh, because the, the oldest manuscripts that we have don't contain that particular line. Um, so it may not have been original to the Matthew text, but even if that's the case, 
they're very similar in that they both, they both point to, to the otherness of God. You know, the last sentence, it extols God's kingdom and his glory and his power. And the first sentence points to the holiness of his name. And by the way, the Greek word that's translated name is, is the word onoma, which, which means, it means more than just what somebody calls you. Okay, it's a reference to, to the person's influence, to their, their power and their authority. For instance, you know, stop in the name of the law, right? Or, or in the name of love, whatever. Um, but, you know, whenever, whenever we, we hear stop in the name, we know that it's referring to the power and the authority there. It's the same thing here with God's name. Okay, so both of these sentences ascribe glory and, and praise to God, and that's, that's something that we often forget about, right? Because we, we tend to jump straight into our wish lists, don't we? We do. We should definitely start off our prayers by recognizing who God is and how amazing his character is. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, basically, we're asking for more of him in every aspect of the world. You know, we, we want to see his, his, his holy character traits manifested in, on earth, and, and we want to experience his will coming to fruition in, in every way, and we're agreeing with God. We're agreeing with him, essentially, and seeking his presence. And then when we say, give us this day our daily bread, we're acknowledging our dependence on him for, for provision, for everything. And by the way, there's a tacit reminder here that, that we, we certainly ought to be praying regularly because we're asking him to provide for our needs for each day, right? It doesn't say, give us today our yearly bread, you know? That's not how that works, so as much as we might want to be like set up for life, it's, it's really, it's better that the Lord gives us what we need just to get through the day. I mean, Jesus said, right, he, he, he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself, right? Anyway, it, it, it's, it's good to trust the Lord because when we get independent, you know, and I'm putting that in air quotes, <laughs> when we get independent, we tend to forget how desperately we need Jesus and obviously, the next sentence recognizes both that we're sinners who must confess that we're, we're dependent on him for his forgiveness, and also that we're sinners who must forgive one another, which, by the way, is not an option for the Christian. That is not a, a, a negotiable thing. As a Christian, you are required to forgive one another. All of us are. It's a mandate. And insisting that, that he not lead us into temptation, that, that's a prayer for, for sovereign guidance right, which is really, that's crucial for anybody that wants to walk in God's will. Anybody that wants to follow God's ways needs his guidance. He's given us much of that right here. He also gives it to us through his Holy Spirit that, that lives in us. Uh, asking him to deliver us from evil, or some, some translations say uh, the evil one, that is a prayer for his protection against the harmful things of the world and the powers of the devil, which those forces, they're way too strong for us to fight on our own, Okay? And then the word amen is it's basically like saying, yes, I agree. So it's really kind of, this is kind of an outline, I think, by which we can plug in all sorts of things that we would normally pray about. But it also, it keeps things organized in a way that really that, that we, we don't focus on just one area, you know? Uh, an interesting thing I was noticing when I was working on this is that there's a total a spirit of dependence and humility throughout the whole prayer, and yet there's also, I feel like, this amazing confidence. You know, the language of asking is absent from the Lord's Prayer. You know, instead, it sounds like we're almost making demands, which would sound arrogant if it wasn't exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. 
You know, how many of you remember when uh, some grammar Nazi at some point probably explained to you the difference between can I have and may I have, right? If you know my dad, you know I probably heard that 37 trillion times. Um, so that was not an issue in Hebrew culture. The, the way they asked was basically saying, give me this, please, okay? And remember, even though sometimes our, our prayers are, are pathetic and selfish and incomplete, those who have the Holy Spirit living inside them have a translator. They never have to worry that, that, you know, that God doesn't hear, that God doesn't take pleasure in our sincere prayers because Romans 8 tells us that even though we don't know what to pray, it says the Holy Spirit intercedes, intercedes excuse me, for us with groans that words cannot express. So I think we should quit being afraid to, to pray hard and pray often. And let's also, let's, let's stop neglecting this amazing way that God has given us to always be connected to the source of everything we need for the Christian life. Finally, y'all, there's one more way that Jude specifies that we guard ourselves in God's love, and it's, it's kind of a weird one because it's a passive thing that we do actively, and that is waiting. You know, as, as we see the violence and the tension that's escalating in the world, some, some of it's probably fulfilling prophecy, we, we might be getting excited or nervous with the expectation of that Revelation 19 moment, you know, of, of Christ's kingdom returning in power. And, and I, I feel like the biblical phrase that captures the essence of verse 21 uh, was that we guard ourselves in the love of God by waiting for our blessed hope. And I put an asterisk there um, to remind us the word hope in Greek it is not like we think of it in English. It's not wishful thinking, okay? Hope is the confident assurance that God will do what he has promised. That's what hope is. And every year we move, uh, you know, inexorably toward December 25th. And as we come to the, the Christmas holiday, I'm often reminded uh, of Christ's words about being childlike. You know, the staggering amount of faith that little children have in a fictitious elf is a reminder to me, you know, we don't teach our kids that, not judging you, just saying, but it's a reminder to me of how our belief in Christ's imminent return should be all the more childlike and grounded, okay? I mean, I, I, like I said, our family doesn't do the Santa game, but if you, if you consider how small children behave toward the idea, right, they're trying to be good, right, they're putting out their, their sacrificial offering, the cookies and milk. You know, they're waiting with, with eager anticipation for the realization of their faith. How much more should we do this as mature believers in Christ? We ought to be looking forward to this. We ought to be ready for him to come back at any moment. And Jude is very clear about what we're waiting for, specifically referring to it as the mercy unto eternal life. By the way, the, um, the phrase that leads to is not in the Greek. It's simply the word ice, which literally means unto or into. Okay? It's the mercy unto eternal life. It, it's God's mercy. Literally, it's, it, it is his, it's his loving kindness and his forgiveness of our sins that make it possible for us to experience the eternal life that he came and died on the cross to provide for us. And remember, it's, it's, not, it, it's not something that can come from anywhere. This is only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because it's certainly not something that, that we could achieve in our own power, our own ability. You know, in God's great mercy, he sent his anointed son, Jesus Christ, to live that perfect life, that fully obedient life that we could not, right? And then to die this excruciating death to pay the price for our sins. And then he was buried. He was raised from the dead and seen by multitudes of eyewitnesses. And that was as, as a, a tangible expression of how he loves us. That, that whole thing was God saying, this is how I love you. The question this begs, in fact, the choice that we are called to make here, it's very simple to identify. Do we or do we not truly accept this amazing Savior as our Lord? Wherever that came from. For certain, guys, if, if we claim Him as Savior, okay, we must also submit to Him as Lord. Okay? So, it, it, we should be submitted. To, it, it should show up in every single facet of our lives. We can't compartmentalize. Okay? One might even suggest that acknowledging Christ as Lord is the banner under which we can place all those other ways of guarding ourselves in Christ's love. If He is our Lord... We should build ourselves up in the most holy faith through interaction with him and through his word and through his people. And if he is our Lord, then we should spend time communicating with him, both, both talking and listening through his Holy Spirit. And if he is our Lord, we ought to be waiting on the edge of our seats you know, for him to come back. We should be prepared and excited because we want to be a part of whatever it is that he's doing. These, these actions, these desires... They keep us in God's love. They protect us, okay? They keep us focused and centered in the loving will of God. And we're going to land the plane today with a short passage from Titus chapter 2, but please don't mentally check out. I notice sometimes people go, oh, okay. No, don't do that. Stick with me. We're almost done. Stick with me. Consider the connection that Paul makes between waiting for Christ's return and how we ought to live, okay? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, listen, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Does that fit you? Does that description fit you? Does it fit this church? Does it fit the professing church in America? Have we turned from lawlessness and are we showing the fruit of being sanctified? Do we, do we have a zeal for doing God's work in the world around us? You know, maybe you're feeling the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and today you want to take that next step, whatever that step might be. If you have not received Christ as Lord and you've not uh, put your faith in him and confessed it before man and been baptized according to his word, do it today. You have, you have today. You can do it right now. If you've already done that, if you're a baptized believer and you, you're like, you know, I've been coming here a while, I like you guys. 
I want to join this church. You're welcome to do that. We'd love to have you join this church. If you want to just come up and ask for prayer, um, we would absolutely love to pray over you, to pray with you. Uh, people in this church ain't even scared to lay hands on you if you'd like. Um, this, is, this is how we roll. I'm telling you, God is doing something. He's doing something in every person here. And if that's something that is a, a step that you're prepared to take today, don't wait. 